Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stem. And I'm John Rojas. Have you guys gotten a chance to check out our new website yet? I know I have. Of course you have. You've spent all of your time on it. It was worth it, though. It is pretty cool. I actually, I really like it. I'm not a big fan of change sometimes, but I like that. So head on over, check it out. Let us know what you think. And thank you, by the way, for leaving reviews there have been a, a bunch recently, and it's it's not only is it fun to see, but man, you guys are nice, so I appreciate that. This week, we kind of get into John's world, but I will say that I was really pleasantly surprised because there's so many things you can learn. Even when you think you're talking about one topic, it just makes you expand your thought process. Well, one of these days, you'll learn that there is a technology layer on everything. Well, it's really annoying. I actually, I don't like Listen, it. Grandpa, you need to accept it. And this week, we're talking to Larry Downs. He's a co-author and research fellow at Accenture's Institute for High Performance. And he was fantastic. He was. He's also a consultant and speaker on developing business strategies in an age of constant technological disruption. His most recent book is called Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. And we touch on a lot of cool things here. We're not going to talk about it too much. One thing I did want to say is he wrote a book 15 years ago called Unleashing the Killer App. And it was named by Wall Street Journal, one of the five most important books on business and the internet ever 
published ever. So that was kind of important. We touch on that book as well. Hope you guys enjoyed this interview with Larry Downs. Larry, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Can't wait to kind of dive into um, your newest book, Big Bang Disruption, as well as uh, some previous things you've written, which are which are great. Prior to doing that, though, I really was hoping to get a feel for um, you know what you're up to now and how you got to kind of where you are and the success you have achieved. Sure. Well, this I mean, this new book comes about after a two plus year research project I've been doing with my my colleagues at Accenture. But, you know, I've been working in the area of disruptive innovation and technology and its effect on business really more or less my entire career. So in some ways, this is a, a, a big project, but in other ways, it's kind of continuation of something I've been doing for a long time. As I mentioned in the, in the intro here, I was just learning about your previous book, Unleashing the Killer App. And I didn't plan on really discussing it, but it's received such acclaim and and it's renowned as one of the best business and technology books. I was hoping you could touch on that. You know, that was over 15 years ago, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, it feels like about 50 years ago to me. <laughs> well, in the title, you say the killer app. How do you believe the idea of the app has changed since then? Well, you know, in some ways it hasn't changed. I mean, the idea of killer app was this idea of a, a product or service that kind of entered the market and by being so disruptive and, and so much better than things that it were, was competing against really undermined existing industries and it changed the thing and it created new categories and gave consumers a, a whole new way of, of looking at some activity or some function or even in some cases, you know, an entire uh, sector of the industry. In many ways, uh, what we've seen in the 15 years since killer apps is kind of the equivalent of uh, disruptive innovation on steroids. You know, the, the economist Joseph Schumpeter said capitalism is defined as a perennial gale of, of creative destruction. And that's never been more true than it has been in the last decade. In fact, what we're seeing is kind of, uh, you know, perennial gale of creative destruction on steroids. And in the new book, what we, we looked at was really what's happened in that last 10 years. Because even though the Internet continues to be a very disruptive force... What we found was that the nature of innovation had changed, and not just in high-tech industries. In fact, maybe even more outside of high-tech industries because of the kind of continued improvement, uh, you know, exponential growth, as we say, of many technologies, including computers, but all sorts of other technologies as well. You know, it's interesting, again, looking back, do you feel like you had a decent idea of where it was going? I mean, so in 1999, do you think you would look and say, you know, in 2014, they'd be ordering taxis via their smartphone and streaming music anywhere and et cetera, et cetera? Well, yeah, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about Killer App. I mean, I'd say that we got probably every single example in the book is wrong. Uh, <laughs> many of them are companies or products or services that, you know, had their moment in the sun and then disappeared. Uh, some of them, you know, we wrote about Amazon, we wrote about eBay. So we, we had some things right, but, you know, Google didn't exist mm. uh, when we were writing. Smartphones certainly didn't exist when we were writing. And I think if I go back to the principles that we talked about in the books and the rules that we said, you know, were emerging for electronic commerce and very early internet business. 
I think those rules turned out to be pretty good, and I think many of them are, are still in effect. But uh, all of the predictions we made about particular companies or particular technologies, no, not so good. Were some of those companies just ahead of their time? Because I know during the whole dot-com bubble, there was all these things where people said, oh, the Internet's going to change everything. But it really didn't because our connectivity was so slow. Downloading stuff and connecting with other people, it really took too long to grab people's attention. Do you think that... Some of those companies, if they existed now with broadband, could possibly still be around? I think that's a very good point. And I think in some cases that's true. And in fact, one of the examples we give in the book is we talk about uh, ebook readers. So back in you know, 1998, 99, there are already companies trying to sell electronic book readers. And uh, it wasn't so much the broadband in that case. It was more the display technology, the battery technology. Those just were not ready for prime time. And in right. fact, the processors just weren't fast enough or cheap enough to to really make an effective product. And in some ways, kind of the genius of uh, of Amazon in that example is they didn't launch their product until it was clear that the technology was there. And that, in fact, several technologies had come together, storage technology, broadband technology, display technology, battery technology, all those things were ready and that's the moment at which they launched the Kindle, and that's why it had that kind of a big bang take up where millions of people you know bought it after after nobody was buying several earlier attempts by other companies. So I think, yeah, a big part of it is you know kind of timing the the technology and and again, not just network technology, but a lot of technologies. But you know, particularly in in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand after Killer App had come out, we saw so many examples of just bad ideas, bad companies, bad management, you know, people really didn't know how to run a business who kind of said, oh, we're going to be, you know, internet for pet food. We're going to be, you know, the internet for, I don't know, uh, for, for helping men get dates. It was all this crazy stuff that just, you know, did not really, let's just say it wasn't very well thought out. Uh, there was a lot of uh, money around. So a lot of these companies got funded when they never should have in the first place. And I think a big part of the, the bust was just just bad business. I've never thought about that. I, it's funny. All the conversations John and I have had or people we've discussed, it just – it was such a new paradigm. It was like the wild, wild west where everybody could kind of start a business that it took a while to weed out those that had no business acumen. Yeah, and of course it's now become much easier to start a business. I think – uh, I think that's probably where where broadband networks have really, you know, and of course developments like the the cloud and and all this kind of rentable, leasable services you can now get for running a business. You know, you don't really need much infrastructure on your own. You can kind of rent it or or lease it as you as you and scale up and scale down pretty easily. You can source, uh, of course, again using the internet. You can source, you know, your components from all over the world. You can hire uh, software developers wherever they happen to be. All those things didn't exist, certainly in 1999, and that's made it a much, much different economic story for startups and entrepreneurs, even individuals, uh, really can start a business if they've got a good idea. It is much easier now to launch that and let the market tell you whether you've got a good idea or not without a lot of time, without a lot of money, and without a lot of risk. And that just wasn't the case back in the late 90s. In another 15 years, do you think we'll look back and, and laugh at how arcane our technology is now? Well, again, I think what we will certainly laugh at is the examples right. that we hold up as you know, being unbeatable 
uh, Big Bang disruptors. And in fact, you know, having learned our lesson in this book, we start off right in the introduction saying, you know, if you're reading this in a few years, uh, we apologize for all the examples that, <laughs> that now seem uh, hilariously funny because uh, some of them will. There's no, there's no doubt, you know, companies rise, companies fall. People, you know, it really only takes a few mistakes in, uh, in this kind of a pace of change to, uh, to go from being the winner to being, you know, bankrupt. So I think I think we'll certainly look back on that. I definitely think a lot of the you know the technology trends are so exciting and and so many things are about to happen. And again, not just with computer technology, but with you know with the human genome project, with uh, with uh, energy, with optics, with even with you know basic material science. And just you know I was just listening to a story the other day about you know carbon and sheets of carbon that can conduct electricity with no loss of, of any kind of fidelity. I mean, really amazing technologies are kind of on the cusp of becoming Big Bang disruptors or platforms for Big Bang disruptors. So absolutely, there's just stuff we can't imagine. And yeah, we will look back and we'll say, oh, you know, we refer, I was just imagining, we used to refer to cars in the early days as, uh, as horseless carriages. <laughs> and I was just remarking that nowadays, we talk about the future of cars. We talk about driverless cars. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. We don't mm. even have the word yet for what this is going to be. <laughs> that is funny. I can't wait to the driverless cars, by the way. But I had to also ask you then, John and I grew up in Ashburn, Virginia, which is where AOL is headquartered. And we saw, you know, we were still in high school when the there was the big bubble and there were just people, young people, I mean, 30, just millionaires almost overnight. And I look back and wish I wish I was 10 years older at that time and I would have just gone into the right industry and I'd be I'd be rich. So if you were to advise somebody in that situation, what would be that technology industry that you would say, go here? You know, a lot of people think maybe it's healthcare or something yeah. like that. What do you see as kind of the places where we might see a, a big influx of cash and talent and change? Well, you know, I tell you what we saw in, in the research that we did was that the, the industries that were still most heavily regulated were the ones that saw the least impact so far from a lot of these technologies and really didn't experience Big Bang disruption the way so you know, traditionally very competitive industries like consumer electronics or consumer products or gaming or even uh, computer industry itself, uh, they didn't look like that. And the problem is that, of course, you know, when you're heavily regulated, there's a lot of disincentives to invest in new technologies. And there's also a lot of barriers for startups to get into those industries. But we are already starting to see that, you know, consumers and technology are kind of pushing on the borders of those industries. And they're resisting so far. But when they break, our belief is that they will sort of change very dramatically, very quickly. So if I were kind of a, a much younger person today and I was looking for an industry to go into, uh, I would think about things like healthcare, uh, like energy, uh, like uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, like insurance, like banking, places where today the, the sort of incentive for innovating is, uh, is kind of depressed by uh, regulation. These are areas where technology hasn't made much of an impact yet, but there's this pent-up demand for it. And when that demand finally kind of breaks through, watch out. I really like that response. I appreciate that. That, that was, was fun. It makes a lot of sense. And it gives, I think, some good insight to people who might be trying to determine where they might want to look into. As we've kind of topically discussed it, but now dive into your, your newer book, 
Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. I think one of the words that jumped out to me was devastating. And I was hoping you could dive in a little bit and tell us what you meant by that. Sure. I mean, I think that we use that word intentionally as kind of a contrast to what's been in, you know, kind of MBA world, the dominant view of uh, disruptive innovation, certainly for the last 15 years with the publication of uh, Clayton Christensen's famous book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, what Christensen had written was, you know, in his research from the earlier period was that the way disruptors generally uh, show up in the market is that they originally appear as kind of uh, cheaper but inferior alternatives to existing products. So think about you know, personal computers. Well, when the first personal computers, home computers came out, they were actually kind of terrible computers compared to you know, what businesses were using and had been using for decades. But they were cheaper, and that meant they could get kind of a, a foot in the door and start to develop a market kind of using early customers as guinea pigs and as, as, as unintentional funders to actually mature the technology and build a, a, real, a real competitor to traditional computing. And that eventually happened, right? We don't have big mainframes anymore now. Everything is based on kind of what was the, the personal computer model of, of you know, standalone uh, devices. The problem was, for in our research, was what we found is that this pace of change has been accelerating for so long, and the price and performance of these core technologies has improved so quickly that now, when a disruptive innovation enters the market, it often shows up as better and cheaper at the same time. So in the example we gave in the book, if you were making um, the sort of standalone uh, GPS devices for navigation, you know, the Garmin and the Magellan and TomTom, you had that in your car, you carried that around, those devices uh, were, you know, based on a sort of standalone technology. And under kind of the, the old model of the innovator's dilemma, when the smartphone first appeared on the scene, uh, and people like uh, Apple and Google started offering free apps that replicated all those services, all the, the navigation and the turn-by-turn -turn directions and the speaking and the kind of automatic updating and so on. When those first appeared, you'd say, oh, well, great, I've got time now to respond. I can, I can see that they're obviously there now, but they're inferior to my product, so I can now start to figure out how to migrate to the new technology, to the new platform. That would have been the advice you would have gotten from Christensen. The problem, of course, as we know, is when those smartphone apps arrived, they were better and cheaper right from the start. And so if you were waiting, <laughs> if you were waiting for them to show up before you came up with a competitive response, you'd waited too long. And in fact, that's what happened within you know, 18 months. Every measure you want to think about, stock price, market value, sales for those standalone GPS devices, they just crashed. There was no time for a competitive response once the new disruptor had arrived. After listening to that explanation of devastating innovation, I think it begs the question, can companies keep up with this innovation? Because as you were talking about that, the first thing I thought of was, okay, we've got billion-dollar companies like Google, Facebook, and other multi-million-dollar companies out there. But as soon as somebody comes up with something that's better – and either cheaper or at no cost, what's keeping people from jumping to those better things? I mean, when there's a better search engine, we'll move to it. We've done it in the past. So what happens to Google? What happens to Facebook? How do these companies keep up with all this devastating innovation? Right. That's absolutely right. I mean, that's what we found was that consumers, you know, there's, there's very little loyalty left. And frankly, there's very little in the way of barriers to changing 
Uh, so when a new product or service comes out that is clearly better and cheaper, consumers, you know, they use social media, they tell each other about it, they're doing all the marketing, and we see these enormous, you know, migrations in a matter of weeks, sometimes days, you can get, especially for software, you can get millions of users to switch to your product uh, very quickly. So what's, the, what's, what's left for the incumbents? Well, we found there were several strategies that worked for incumbents, and, and certainly leading companies like Apple, Google, and Microsoft, and others demonstrate how you can, in fact, uh, do quite well in that environment. First of all, one thing you can do is you can be the innovator, of course, as well. And one of the great mm -hmm. things about companies like Google is they don't stop with one successful product. They don't say, okay, I do search. That's all I do. I'm just going to keep improving the search. They realize that you know, that's a business that can change. But what they really have is an advantage in information. And they're going to use that information to launch all kinds of products and services. It could be finance. It could mm -hmm. be you know, uh, Google Glass. It could be driverless cars. All sorts of different things based on that kind of core understanding of, a, of an advantage they have in information. The incumbents can also acquire, and if they acquire early enough, they can get a decent price. So you see, of course, out here in Silicon Valley, where I am, the going price these days seems to be about a billion dollars for a startup. Once they've kind of uh, latched on and the market has clearly said, wow, we like Instagram, we like uh, Snapchat, we like uh, some of these other uh, early stage products, uh, rather than try to compete with them, if you're the incumbent, you just buy them. And if you buy them, you know, of course, a billion dollars is a lot of money. But imagine if you had the opportunity to have bought Facebook or Twitter for a billion dollars before they went public. Now you'd be saying, wow, we got an incredible bargain. It's funny. I just saw, I forget where it was, a, an interview, I think it was yesterday, talking about how Facebook is just losing a ton of the younger generation. I mean, people are just bailing out of Facebook. And the person interviewing was like, oh, well, is that bad for Facebook? And they said, no, because they're making that up exponentially in older people coming to Facebook. And the younger people are using things like Instagram, which they own. So mm -hmm. it's it goes to what you were saying is, you know, you can either innovate or purchase as long as you're continually making the right decisions. Yeah, that's right. I, I you know, I think the, the, the mainstream media has kind of a herd mentality with tech companies. So as soon as somebody starts to, you know, write the obituary for a company, everybody dives in. It's it's ridiculous. In the case of Facebook, I mean, they are they are clearly still making a lot of good decisions. And I, it, it's crazy to, to start to talk about you know, the end of Facebook or really the end of, of a lot of companies that the media, you know, sure. want to bury before it's time. One of the things we also found in our research, so even for kind of non-tech companies, for more established companies outside the tech industry, maybe who are not as, uh, don't really have their finger on the pulse of, of what's going on in Silicon Valley and other technology centers, is that they can very cheaply, I think, get access to the entrepreneurs to the you know to the to the leading edge of things by doing things like we saw many examples of companies that sponsored hackathons so these are these kind of contests where they bring a bunch of developers together give them a task give them 48 hours kind of throw some carbohydrates their way and say see what you can do in 48 hours and maybe it's a it's a banking application they say you know what can you do you know with a smartphone and banking that we haven't thought of yet so maybe that's uh, maybe that's a city group that's uh, sponsoring this. And we, that is one of the examples that we talked about, in fact. And very quickly, you know, they can kind of get uh, insight into where technology from left field that they're not really thinking about 
might enter into their industry and be one of these devastating uh, innovators. And if they find some good things that they like, uh, they could then say, well, we kind of like that uh, example. Maybe we have an incubator. Uh, we'll bring you in-house. You know, we'll co-develop this with you, get it into market. And so they can kind of get around the problem that big companies often have of very slow-moving R&D organizations without having to actually dismantle that. It makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is you mentioned it earlier and it's kind of continued to come up is with all this change and the, the rapid pace that it's occurring, there's also the ability to really screw up really fast. And so what is your advice and what did you find works? I mean, it's terrifying as a, an incumbent, if you will, that you have all of this, these resources invested and one mistake, I mean, almost to one bad tweet can, yeah. can do you in. Yeah. Well, we, you know, one of the companies that we uh, talked about was uh, the game company Zynga. <laughs> and this was a really kind of a really sad story. I mean, they had uh, they would acquired actually the studio that made Draw Something. That was a tablet-based game. Everybody was playing it. I mean, you looked at the numbers, and we did of how rapidly Draw Something uh, climbed, and it was you know adding millions and millions of users every hour. It's crazy uh, popularity. And Zynga very quickly, I think, to their credit, came in and said, "We want to acquire this studio." And uh, get get you know get that into our our fold, and so they closed the deal you know in kind of record time. Within maybe a week of closing that deal, draw something's uh, numbers started to fall. They basically they'd hit saturation. People, all the people who were going to play it were playing it. They were all sort of starting to get tired of it. And it's just as quickly as those numbers went up, the numbers started to go down. The problem, I think, for both Zynga and the, the studio that made Draw Something was they didn't have the next thing ready. Mm. And that's really what you, you know, if, if you are having this, what we call catastrophic success, where you're getting all your customers are showing up, you know, in a matter of weeks or months, you have to kind of train yourself to think, all right, this is great. But I don't want to be deluded into thinking this is the num this, this line of going up is just going to continue going up indefinitely. I know it's not. And in fact, I know because I'm having such amazing success so quickly that it probably means the lifespan of this product or service is going to be much shorter. So I'm going to get all the value out of it early, which is great, except I also have to tell myself, don't be fooled. Don't think this is going to go on. You've got to be ready with the next product or service, or you've got to be ready to say, all right, I'm a one-hit wonder. This was a great success. I'm going to sell this now. To, to some bigger company and let them develop the next platform, let them develop the next generation of it. But if you get stuck thinking my success is going to go on forever, indeed, if you even think it's going to go on kind of for a normal life cycle, that's when you're going to get busted. Why do you think it is that some of these companies appear invincible to bad decisions or negative press? Case in point, Snapchat. I mean, they had a huge security breach but they still add millions of people, however fast they do. And then kids and I'd say adults continue to send hundreds of millions of Snapchats a day. It looks like nothing that they can do can appear to be wrong. Why do you think that is with companies like Snapchat? <laughs> nothing can appear to be wrong until it is. <laughs> yeah. And then you're in trouble. Well, you know, a lot of it, I think, is one of the things that we find with, with Big Bang Disruption is that there's a tremendous momentum and tremendous inertia. Once these markets take off, again, 
uh, consumers here are doing a lot of the marketing to each other through social media, you know, through all the different uh, uh, online tools that we have. And there's, there's just kind of gravity takes over for a long time. And you can, it's true, you can, you can weather some, some pretty big uh, mistakes or some, you know, uh, embarrassments. Uh, but, but that never lasts very long. There, there's sort of, I think, a mentality, particularly uh, among American consumers, uh, that they really love the underdog. And they're willing to forgive uh, things that uh, a startup that, you know, has a lot of charm Maybe the founders are very charming, you know, maybe, you know, they just feel like that's the underdog. They're going to forgive things from them that they would not forgive for an incumbent and that incumbent would really suffer for the same mistake, whether it's a security mistake or a privacy mistake or just a bug uh, that, uh, that causes outages or whatever it is. The problem, of course, again, is you don't want to rely on that because the, the timeline from startup to incumbent gets yeah. much, much shorter uh, in, in this new world. So even if uh, even if the market is very forgiving of you now, that period, that sort of uh, the honeymoon period, if you will, lasts uh, shorter and shorter all the time. You know, people always or often, they believe that when we're talking about innovation and change and all this fast-paced thing, it's always technology, which is, as, we, as you've mentioned, not always the case, but it's what comes to the front of the mind. And I was wondering, now that technology is it's expanding rapidly – in terms of uh, things we're able to do. It's getting cheaper. People are, are demanding that we they pay less and get more. Do we ever reach a point where it's not sustainable? For example, some of these apps you've mentioned are incredible apps, and people are like, oh, it's a dollar. I'm not paying for it. When do we reach the point where it's like we're not being compensated or the creators aren't being compensated for fantastic work? Well, as you, as you asked me that question, I'm reminded of a famous quotation from Winston Churchill who said capitalism is the worst system except for all the others. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, it's true. You know, and he's right. I mean, there's, there's, there are, there are, there are still, of course, plenty of inefficiency and waste in a capitalist system. There's, you know, as, as I mentioned before, there's this idea of creative destruction. There is a lot of destruction and value is created and value is destroyed. That's sort of the way that the market works. Right now, I think you're absolutely right. Consumers have been conditioned in an increasing number of markets, again, not just in electronics or computing devices or smartphones, but in many markets, they're now conditioned to expect that you know the next the next set of products will be better and cheaper, if not free, than the ones that they have now. That is sustainable only as long as we continue to experience these exponential improvements in the core technologies in both their price and their performance. Uh, for computers, there doesn't seem to be any reason to believe we won't continue to see that kind of improvement, at least uh, certainly for, for my working life, uh, but probably for your guys' working life as well. I think, I think you know, that seems pretty safe. There are these other technologies, as I mentioned, that aren't quite as developed uh, in material science, in the human genome, uh, in energy, and so on, that seem to have the potential for being those kinds of platforms as well. And they could lead to trillions of dollars of, of new economic value. That value can be shared between companies and consumers. That's kind of the way capitalism works. So I'm very optimistic. And I think our research suggested there's cause for considerable optimism that, that kind of much of this technology-driven improvement is sustainable and that, in fact, you know, it's a, it's a source of, of potentially 
kind of you know reaching the developing world you know bringing up the the standard of living not just of people in developed nations but around the world in a way that uh, you know are kind of our our earlier efforts to do that haven't really been very successful so generally speaking i'm very optimistic on the other hand i don't have as long to to live as you guys do so it doesn't have to last as long for me <laughs> and that's actually a great point i was watching an interview with bill and melinda gates and they were talking about how People don't necessarily realize in just a, a decade or two how much difference ha technology and just innovation and all of these things have made on the entire world, specifically third world countries, developing countries and economies, places like India and China, and they were talking like Brazil, Mexico City even, have really gone in maybe 20 years from a not so great place to you know, mildly thriving economies, much in part due to these increases in technology. So although we might not see all of it or appreciate all of it, it is a good thing for mankind. It's also, it's, I agree completely with what you're saying, and, and that's absolutely right. It's also, there's, again, there's kind of a, a, a cognitive dissonance uh, among human beings that we just don't see where we were 10 years ago, we can't see it anymore. Mm -hmm. We kind of look back and we think, oh, we always had smartphones. You know, we always had the internet. We always had the cloud. We always had, uh, you know, uh, uh, decoded the human genome. We, we always think that, that, that we're seeing incremental improvement when, in fact, if we went back and kind of, you know, I like to do this, you know, go out on YouTube and look at kind of news reports from 10 years ago about technology. What's the internet going to do for us? What's the world going to be like? And you see just how much further we've come than we could have ever imagined because, you know, we just couldn't imagine uh, exponential improvement. I think the same thing works in reverse. Looking back, we can't really see how far we've come, you know, in 10 years, in our own lifetime, because we get used to the, the, the better and cheaper world very, very quickly. We adapt to it very quickly, and we forget that, you know, we didn't used to have that. I wanted to ask you a quick question because, I mean, you've written about this stuff in all of your books, basically this awesome trilogy of, of technology, disruption, and all that kind of stuff. What has been, I'd say in the last five years, your favorite technology disruption that has affected your life on a daily basis? Like, what do you see yourself using the most that's been due to a disruption? Well, I, I think the, the, the quick answer is the smartphone. I didn't have a – I was actually kind of a little late to getting a smartphone, uh, not because I was skeptical about it, because I, but more because I was afraid I would be you know, completely addicted to it, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it does so many things. It's replaced so many other devices. It's replaced so many pieces of paper. It's replaced you know, my flashlight. It's my camera. It's my, my address book. It's my phone. It's my email reader. It's all these different things. I think that's clearly the one, you know, particular invention. But I think actually even more than that, the amazing thing about the smartphone is that because it's been so successful, we now have, you know, a billion plus smartphones around the world. And what that's meant is that there is an enormous market for basic components that didn't exist before. So for the cameras, for the accelerometers, for the magnetometers, for the displays, uh, you can now buy off-the-shelf components sensors, all these things you can get very, very cheaply and put them in other things. Hmm. So, for example, you know, there's now a kind of booming market for personal uh, autonomous aircraft, or sometimes known as drones. You can start buying your own drone now for a very low price. If you actually took the drone apart, what you'd see is a vast, 
not majority, but a number of the key components of the drone are actually parts from smartphones. That's amazing. That really and is. That's why yeah. you can get them so cheap because there's this huge market for those parts and, you know, price goes down as, and, 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 and we can make in huge volume and use them for other things. I'm glad because I was just looking at buying one of those the other day, not for any particular reason other than, hey, this thing's not that expensive. This is pretty awesome. cool. So I've never thought about the fact that those components were right. smartphone components, and now we have access to more products that use those components at a cheap price. Yeah. That's a pretty cool way to look at things. The same is true, by the way, for all the new health and fitness uh, technologies that are you know just now kind of getting to that consumer level stage, you know, the, the trackers, the, the sort of the Fitbits, the, the jawbones, all these different uh, devices that can track your, your, your speed, your calories, your sleep, all these different things. If you look inside of them, they're basically a bunch of smartphone parts. You know, the sensors are there, the accelerometer is there. And because you can buy those now in bulk, you can put them into other kinds of products and sell them for a very low price. I'm so mad that I didn't put two and two together with that because I, I sit here with Chris. We always try to come up with ideas of creating that next big product. And I always sit there and I come to that wall and I'm like, oh, but building a prototype probably costs so much money. But in reality, now, when you think about it, it's probably not that too out of the world in terms of like price for building a prototype because these components have come down in price. Exactly. Yeah. Prototyping has become something that an individual can do. And if you have a 3D printer, you, know, you can yeah. print the parts that you don't already have. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the flashlight on the phone and the flashlight does not get enough love. I, 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 it's one of those things I don't ever think about, right? Like, oh, phone, GPS, blah, blah. I use my flashlight every single night. Every night, that's how I like find my way in the dark to my bed. So I just thought that was funny. But Larry, I know we, we went over a little bit on time, but it's such an interesting topic and something that's so relevant. People are constantly trying to figure out what's going on because information is coming at us at this warp speed. And so I really appreciate you talking with us, putting it in you know your most recent book, Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation, and helping the rest of the world kind of understand what's going on. I know you write in a lot of places. Is there somewhere specifically that our listeners can go to kind of follow you or, or, or learn more or as you kind of put this information out there? Sure. I mean, we have a, we've got a Facebook page, uh, Big Bang Disruption on Facebook, and we always keep that as current as anything with everything that both Paul and I are writing or where we're speaking or, you know, any news about our research or about the book. Awesome. Great. And we'll link to all your stuff on the website at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, Larry. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and best of luck with this book. I'm sure it'll do well as all, all your other ones have. And we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, happy to come back anytime if you want to talk more. Absolutely. Will do. All right. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Larry Downs. As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we have redesigned smartpeoplepodcast.com. Make sure you head over there, check it out, see what's new over there. We've got convenient buttons to rate us, to subscribe, all that cool stuff. And we've added a blog. And hopefully when you're listening to this, there is content on there. You know what I just realized? This episode isn't going to go out for a couple of weeks and the website will no longer be new. The website is always new to somebody. Good point. Touche. All right, guys, it was great uh, chatting with Larry. Hope it brought you some knowledge on this wondrous day. And reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Keep listening to Smart People Podcast. And as it says on our Facebook page, tell a friend. Tell a friend.